Yeah, Father God, thank you for Olivia. Thank you for the word that you've put on her heart today. God, I pray that our ears would be open to your truth, that our ears would be open and ready for change, and that you would prompt us and speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. It's just such a pleasure to be with you, being in such a lovely church, lovely, warm people, as they always are up north, right? So it's great. It's great to be with you. I'm hoping that I can talk to a few of you afterwards as church ends. So I'm going to be talking about race, racial justice. Now, that's not something you hear every Sunday morning, is it really? But I hope that it will be a blessing to you. And although some of the things and the topics that I engage in may be a little difficult and may make you feel and squirm a little in your seat, can I designate this place as a safe space in which at least we can start to talk about it? In fact, I think this church is perhaps very foundational in bringing it not just to the periphery, but actually in your Sunday morning services. That is an amazing thing, and your leaders are to be commended for it. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about racial justice. I'm going to talk about courage, compromise, and complicity. Now, when I ask you, if I were to ask you right now, what do you see standing before you here on the stage? What would you say? I think if I was sitting in your seats, I would think that you'd probably say, well, she's a woman. Uh, Yes, she's a dark-skinned woman. She may or may not be attractive. What do you see? Um, Let me change the scenario a little bit. If you met me in the street and you hadn't got a clue who I was, and I was standing perhaps next to you in the supermarket or behind you in a queue somewhere, and you saw me remonstrating with someone, a white person, what would you see and what would you judge me like then? Let me change the scenario again. Suppose you saw me being handcuffed and being put into a police van or a car. What judgments would you arrive at? One more scenario for me. Suppose you saw me uh, on my way to a holiday and I have a one-year-old, a little tiny child with me and I'm juggling luggage, pushchair, trying to get on a flight and you sitting in the seats or on the coach or wherever you may be, see me and you think, where's her significant other? What would you think then? Now, all of those are scenarios that I've lived through, and I'll tell you a little bit more as I unpack this, because actually what you see matters. Now, many of you will go more to just saying, not just that I see a woman, or a dark-skinned woman who may or may not be attractive, but I bet you would see a colour. I bet you would judge me in each of those scenarios according to the colour. It may be that when you see me, or if you saw me being handcuffed to a policeman, you would say, oh, oh there's another one. That's, that's another person of colour who has obviously committed something. You may or may not pass judgement on me in that particular way. You see, racism is a bit like that. It's deep and almost unconscious in many of us, especially those of us who are non-persons of colour. It exposes our biases, it exposes our personal beliefs, and it renders us privileged depending on which side you are on. 
So as I've said before, I'm delegating this as a safe space so we can discuss and unpack this very, very much more. So if we talk about racism, what does it mean? What does racism mean? Well, racism primarily, and if you look in Google and type racism into Google, you will find that there are absolutely loads and loads of different definitions of what racism is. But I've picked on one particularly that I like because it's very simple. And it says it's this. We are speaking primarily of the racial injustice and discrimination experienced by non-white people, people of color, whichever terminology you would like to use. We're speaking primarily of the racial injustice and discrimination experienced by non-white people. Now, for racism to exist, power must come into play. Right? And it comes into play because it means that whatever happens, the person of color is unfairly discriminated against simply by the fact that they are non white. So it's important to distinguish that racism is simply this it's, um, it's the fact that a non white person, simply because of the color of his or her skin, will walk through life at a disadvantage and will face difficulties that white people never encounter or experience. Now, the church has played a role in this over the centuries and over many, many years, millennia perhaps. And historically, it's either been courageous in speaking out against racism, or it's been complicit or compromise the message. That's really difficult for those of us of color because of a number of reasons I will, that I will talk about. Now, we've got to be fair to say that, that, of course, the church has played a role in talking about some of these issues. In fact, um, Christians have played a part in the abolitionist movement, in civil rights, anti-apartheid, as well as, latterly, the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm not going to try to be political. I'm just going to try to bring out the basic tenets. And of course, you know, I was born in the 60s, in the early 60s. And so at that time in America, many of you know about the civil rights movement that was taking place there at that time. And many of you, or certainly your, your parents or your grandparents, may have engaged with it, perhaps <coughs> not personally, but actually looked at the subject of, of injustice. You may have seen the hoses or the dogs that were set upon people of color as they demonstrated for their rights over there in America. But you may have thought and concluded, well, that was okay because, well, not okay, but it was in America. It's a continent, it's over the pond, it's far enough away from us, so as we pay it no mind. But when I think about this, my parents came to this country as Windrush generation. Many of you heard of Windrush, right? So one of the first people who were invited to this country by the UK government at that time. And they invited them because World War II had decimated our country. And so there was a ready pool of people who were willing to come across to be able to rebuild the country. But when they arrived, as my father and my mother told me and have told me over the years, they didn't find the warm welcome that they were anticipating. You see, over in the Caribbean, 
This was the mother country. This was the place to be. We, and I say we because I'm identifying with my parents at that time, they thought this is the greatest land, the greatest place on earth. When they had the invitation to come, they put their hands up and said, yes, I will come. Many of them sold houses, land, left their children behind so that they could come. And their way that they're coming to the UK was simply so that they could build, contribute something to the motherland, and they do use that term very affectionately, the motherland, contribute something, something to the motherland, and then return within five or six years. The fact that I am here still after five millennia tells you that many of them did not go back. And on top of that, the injustice that some of them have faced because all of a sudden it turns out that although they'd come and arrived in the late 50s, early 50s, and early 60s, that actually now their very citizenship was being challenged through the Windrush scandal. And many of you will know about this. Now, it may be useful to start a personal story, really, in this, because my father's experience of coming to the UK, as he tells me, was met with a lot of hostility. And I think I may have a picture of my lovely father, uh, who has now passed. And, and there he is, you probably can't see him very well, and that's him in his wedding suit in the 1960s, getting married to my wonderful mother, and he'd come over and paved away. And his, his story's always been, I want to come here, and I want my children to be better off than I ever was, because this is a land of opportunity. This is a place where we have been told for many, many years is the place where we belong. This is, this is my home. And so his experience of coming to the UK was difficult because he would tell me, in fact, he's got some lovely stories about coming off the boat. It wasn't actually the Windrush, but it was a ship very similar to that. And because he had lots of luggage, he was able to carry his, one of his suitcases on his head, right? Now, that's a skill. Have any of you ever tried to carry anything on your head? <laughs> And he was carrying this on his head, you see. And people would look at him and stop in the streets, and he could not understand why. And then someone who had been here a little longer said, Charles, which is my dad's name, take that suitcase off your head. They don't, don't do that here. <laughs> All right? And so his experience of coming here was, was, was difficult. We lived in a, and I remember this distinctly, we lived in a big house with lots of rooms where, where I was. Uh, born at, at that time. And then several years later, I'm born, and I'm born into a situation where it's better. My, my parents expected so much more from me, and thank God I was able to avail myself of education and all that, and I've gone through several degrees and I'm well qualified, and that's great. And I thought life was, was, was it's really good now, except I met racism there too. And now I have a son, and my son is 22 years old, and my son now is experiencing racism in a way that I hadn't anticipated that he would. You see, I've always been black. <laughs> you can laugh. I know some of you are a bit nervous about it, but you can. I've always been black, so I don't know what it is to be any other color. And yet, 
The reality um, of, of being a color actually changes my world in many ways that people of, of, uh, who, are non, uh, who are white would never experience. So it influences my education. It influences the school and the educational prospects that I have and that I'm afforded. It influences the salary I earn, the progress I make throughout my career, i.e. whether I'm promoted or not. It influences major health decisions. So if I'm a woman, it's highly likely, especially if I'm pregnant, that I could die, much more so than a white woman of the equivalent age or status. It, it influences if I'm a black male or Asian male, my rate of going through diabetes, kidney disease, prostate cancer, all of which are much more prevalent in black and Asian populations than it ever is in anyone else. It influences how I'm meted out justice if I'm unlucky enough to have to go to court. It dictates my interactions that I have with the police if I have one, especially if I'm a black male. It influences the messages I drill into my children from their earliest years, as soon as they have the understanding. So many of my beautiful white brothers and sisters will not have had the experience of trying to teach their child that if you are ever approached by a policeman, pause for effect, but if, I'm ever, if you are ever approached by that, do not argue, even if you are right. That's a hard thing to tell a nine, eight, seven-year-old. Don't argue, don't say anything, never run away, don't remonstrate, don't in any way put up any resistance. That's difficult. In fact, being a person of color influences the overall length of my life and its quality. Now, when you hear of things like that, and I'm just giving you a little bit of an example, I think the church needs to be outraged about this. I think as Christians and as people who love God, that we need to be outraged, disgusted, and determined to be part of the change and not just wish for the change. Don't you think so? I think churches have a role to play. Remember I started off by saying churches are either complicit or they, they comply with what, in what um, racism, how racism is rolled out. I think at this time in 2023, we need to be a people that stand up and tell the truth. We need to be outraged and disgusted. You see, racial justice and racial injustice is a matter of faith and morality for us as Christians. And now I can turn to a scripture. You know, Genesis 1 verse 27 says this. It says that God created humankind in his image and his likeness. And Galatians 3 verses 28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. There's something there then that tells me that God intended that all of us as brothers and sisters, as people of color and people who are white, whichever creed or wherever we fall, have a part to play and are equally loved by the Father because he created this, this diversity in the first place. Now, I don't know how many of you are gardeners, right? Any gardeners here? Yes. Right, yeah. 
I admire gardeners so much. I haven't got a clue. I've let weeds grow and taken out really healthy plants because I can't tell the difference between them. But you know what? There's something I I started to watch Gardener's World because I want my garden to be beautiful. And then I am now a gardener by paralysis because I cannot choose. I have no idea how I'm going to choose from the millions of plants there are which ones to put in my garden. Now, I know, of course, that it depends what gardening zone I'm in, what sort of soil I've got, whether it's south, north, east or west facing garden, all of those things. But the vast array of plants that God has made on earth, some of which we will never see, is amazing to me. God loves diversity. And here I have sitting before me loads of different people. All of you are diverse in ways, in different ways, even though We may look the same in the sense of white and black, depending on how you see us. We are all very, very much different. God loves diversity. And so the challenge and the opportunities for the church to promote racial justice has never been more apparent and never been such an opportunity for us to change things. Because there are issues that are abounding. I'm thinking about police brutality, incarceration, immigration, poverty, health disparities, environmental injustice, and the last. Now, I'd always thought, as being part of this country, I've been afforded such a great privilege. My parents, coming as I've described to you back in the 60s, they came and they wanted a much better life for their children than they ever had, and I've had that. I've been to universities, I've got a few degrees, I've worked really hard, I became a senior manager, director level in the NHS, uh, left, took early retirement so I could work at Elim, and have had the opportunity to travel all over the world and in many different places. And so I felt, in many ways, and as I'm bringing up my son, I know that racism exists, of course I do, but I felt that we, especially here in the UK, had moved on a little bit more. But then, in 2020, we see the awful death of George Floyd. And then I became angry. I have never been more angry than I was than at the death of George Floyd. How many of you felt exactly the same? I'm sure you did. To see uh, an injustice being perpetrated literally on social media shocked me. And it provoked me to do something about it. But what could I do? Now, I know that, and I'm not being political, some of you may or may not uh, align yourselves with the Black Lives Matter movement. That doesn't really matter to me. That wasn't really the thing that I was looking at. But I know that what it did, what that murder did, or the killing, the unlawful killing of George Floyd did, was to stir up an anger in a generation that was beyond me, the next generation down. And in fact, I participated in a march that I've never ever done before. I went on one of those marches. I knelt in a mass meeting in Birmingham. And I was determined that whatever was in my power to do, I would do that to help us along in these difficult conversations. And that's been difficult. 
Because guess what? You know, for people of colour, it's hard to keep talking because <laughs> people keep asking us, what do you think? What do you see? Can we share? And all the time you're sharing your pain over and over and over again and hoping that it hits home. But I have been challenged too. I've been challenged to think, let's keep talking because as Christians, God expects so much more from us. He expects me as a woman of colour to be able to share my experience legitimately, to share it sensitively and kindly, knowing that sometimes when you share these things, it could be open to misinterpretation. But however, he expects my white colleagues to be able to listen and to be able to hear what's being shared. So how do we start? Well, I've got this saying that I particularly love, and it says, if we aim at nothing, we're likely to hit it. And I think we start from a place of talking, sensitive listening, and underpinning all of that with a theological understanding of what racism really is. Genesis 1, as I've talked about in the creation stories, is, gives us a great theological foundation for understanding the prejudices and in fact, when I think about Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, when Christ tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, we have a role to play in what that looks like. Now, it was referred to that when we had um, a discussion at our Elim Leadership Summit, I had someone next to me. I'm, I'm from the Car my heritage is Caribbean. He was Nigerian. And people would look at us with similar skin colours, and think that we're both the same. But actually, there couldn't be, sometimes, in some instances, more of a diversity and a divergence between us, because the culture of the African nation is different to the way that I was brought up, although we share the same skin colour. And so we have to come as well. We, there needs to be some reconciliation between us, because we are Christians together. But... It was interesting to me when I thought about racism and how I personally experienced it over the years. I was thinking, well, you know, well, I've, been, I've been fairly lucky in many ways until I went traveling this year. So I went to South Africa. And I'd never been to South Africa before. I'd never, I've been to Africa, West Africa, but never to the South. And when I went, I thought, oh, this is a beautiful country. What a, what a lovely place. And then I got on a flight as I was on my way to Malawi, and I boarded a flight. And you can imagine, you know, we're going down, we're walking down the, the aisle, and, and we're putting, you know, what that, that, that thing is where I hope they've got enough space left in the overhead bins. How I many of you have been there? And you're thinking, I hope they've got enough of my five suitcases and my little bag. I only had the one. And so I'm trying to, to put my things up, and I... I'm on the plane, and around me are a sea of different colours, people, different coloured people. And I'm putting my suitcase, or my little travelling case, up in the overhead bins, overhead lockers. And I find that there is a space, but I actually need to move somebody else's stuff over, if any of you have ever done that. So I'm very sensitively moving someone's stuff over while I put mine in. And then, as I look up, I hear a voice saying, what are you doing? And I turned around. I thought, it can't be speaking to me. And yes, a tall, white, South African man stood up 
and said, what, why are you moving my, just move it. Move your stuff because you are going to break the stuff that I've got in. And I, my jaw fell open. I could not believe that this man was speaking to me in this way. And I said, I'm just, in fact, I'm just helping this lady because I put mine in. I was helping another lady to put her stuff into the overhead bins. And that man stood there, and I won't go through the argument, but he stood there remonstrating with me, telling me, how dare you put your stuff, why did you bring so much? How, why, why did you put, I said, well, actually, it's not for me. I'm, I'm helping this lady. I put mine in, but I'm trying to find a space for this other lady. You should have put it um, in, the, in, the, um, in the hold. Why would you do that? Then his wife started, then, then, then you see, because Olivia comes from the Caribbean, you see. And my parents are Jamaican. So now I am really fired because I'm thinking everyone's eyes is down. Everyone's eyes, everyone's looking down. No one's, it's absolutely deathly quiet. No one challenges this man's behavior. No one challenges his words to me. Nobody does anything. Everyone's quiet. But you can see, you know that their eyes are on you. What's she gonna say now? So I'm thinking, I must remember I'm a Christian. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. But I thought, I'm not going to take this. So I said, if you want to sort it, you sort it then. Then his wife comes in. Because apparently I should not have spoken. Every South African sitting around there knows, do not remonstrate with a tall white man in a plane. You are going to be thrown off, even though you are right. You are right in this case. This woman insults me. So now I'm really in a fighting spirit. Now I'm fighting in my heart. I was so shocked with the injustice. I said to her, she said, and you're going to scratch my leather bag. Seriously. I was like, what? I said, do you know who you are talking to? Do you realize that you are so rude? I am so glad that I'm not like you. End of, and I sat down. But inside, I was boiling. I thought, to have that experience in a place where no one stands for you and no one stands up for you, whether they are people of color or not, was kind of scary. Then I realized what it must have been like for others who've been in similar situations. And then I come off the plane, that's fine. That, that, that incident has gone, but it's never left me, and I thank God for that. And then I go to the Houses of Parliament because I was asked and invited to, um, to a discussion. And I'm standing outside one of the Houses of Parliament, and I'm standing there, and somebody had called me, and I'm on the phone, and a, a white lady stands perhaps just about here, and she's, talk, she, she's staring at me. And I'm thinking, is she? She's looking at me, yes. And I'm on the phone, and I'm trying to say to someone on the phone, yeah, I'm just about to go into a meeting. And she's, she's standing there, and she's staring at me. And I thought, oh, why does she, why is she? And I said to the person on the phone, this woman's just really staring at me. And she had a, what to me felt like an aggressive pose. And I thought, she's, and she just stared at me, and stared at me, and stared at me. She said nothing. And so I thought, right. Phone down. Can I help you? And she said, actually, she said, I, I'm sorry for staring at you, 
but I thought you may have been a minister, and I wanted to make a point. And I said, oh, instantly I changed my stance, because what she had mistaken me for being was a, a, a person in government. And so she thought she would have and represent her case to me. But I, in my head, because of the way I was thinking and having someone just standing there and staring at me, had misinterpreted. So can you see that things work two, work two ways? Sometimes you can misinterpret something that's genuinely great. I mean, I was ashamed. She said, well, you look the part. And I thought, oh, thank you very much. That's made my day. All right. Um, and again, you can misinterpret things. We have to have the sensibility of the Holy Spirit to do something and to be the people and be the change that we want to see. So what am I asking our churches to do? Thank you for inviting me to speak about it. It's never a comfortable thing to talk about. I speak all over the place and I, it's usually something far more inspiring sometimes. And sometimes the silence betrays it in itself. But I want you to know that I believe that as a church, God has placed us here for such a time as this. I want you to know that I am never determined, deterred by the colour of my skin. Never have I once been deterred by that. It's never bothered me in the sense that I have got as much right to stand as any person. I do not care whether you're black, brown, or white. Who God places, he places. Who he calls, he empowers. And so whether you are black or white, I want you to know, take your place in the world. Be the change that God wants you to be. And more important, recognize this, that God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. There is no better place than for foundry, community church, to be the mirror of God's kingdom right here on earth, to listen, to be willing to engage with the difficult things. Now, I know that racial injustice is one of those most difficult things, but there are other things coming. AI, artificial intelligence, LGBTQ+++++++++. All of that is coming. All of these difficult things that are dividing many churches. If we are going to be determined to stick to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got to be expecting to have some of those difficult conversations. So let's encourage an open dialogue. You see, at that time, you, you know in Acts, the, the Bible talks about, and in Ephesians, talks about two lots of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. You know what it was like. Right? If you read, read your Bibles, some of the Jews just did not want God's word to go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were absolutely of no consequence to them at all. But God, he says in, in Ephesians 2 verses 13 to 14, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus came to reconcile us to each other, and he's going to do that. And let me end with this. There is a glorious future ahead of us. Yeah. Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Wow. You and I are going to be part of that throng of people. We're all going to be wearing white robes. I hope the Lord has got different sizes available. (laughs) For those of us who may not, one size may not fit all. We don't know what God's going to do with that. But before him, every nation, tribe, and people are going to be there. All diversity in all its colors and it's all its, in all its glory. And all of you are going to be holding palm branches in your hand, welcoming Hosanna, our God. Isn't that a glorious thing? So why don't we learn then and work hard to mirror what God is doing? What we'll do in heaven, let's do it here. And I'm going to end with this prayer by Phil Chick. And it's this. So let's just close our eyes for a moment as you reflect on some of the things I've said today. And his prayer is this. Father, bless us as we strive to find our way to true racial reconciliation. Open our eyes to all that goes on around us that contribute to racial injustice. Grant us the knowledge to understand all that we do, both personally and as a society, which prevents us from recognizing and defending the dignity of all our brothers and sisters, especially those who are of color. Grant us the grace to reflect on our own actions and inactions that contribute to this pain. Grant us the strength to take action, to alleviate this pain, and to end racial injustice in all its forms. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for your time.